Is it recording? I'm not getting like a signal if it's recording. Okay. Uh, do you want okay. me running uh, Audacity or are you just doing it through? Space? It is. It is. Right. You, it is. Okay. Yeah, it's recording. Yeah. Okay. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ranking Thrones. I am James Kelly. I'm Evan Camacho. And we got a special guest joining us today. We got Stephen Atwell. Hello. Uh, Stephen is. Uh, so I am just a, a more amateur fan. I have read all the books that George R. R. Martin has read, has written in the A Song of Ice and Fire series. Evan comes in as just a pure Game of Thrones fan. But we got us a real super fan on this week, and we are really excited to have him. So, uh, Stephen, just just uh, introduce yourself. Uh, sure. So, uh, my name is Steve Atwell. Uh, I'm a PhD historian. And I am the sort of sole proprietor and writer of Race for the Iron Throne, uh, where I cover um, A Song of Ice and Fire uh, chapter, uh, you know, one chapter by one chapter, uh, but with the intent being to write one essay about each chapter in the entire series. Uh, mm -hmm. I primarily follow sort of the uh, political and historical sides of... A Song of Ice and Fire. I don't go in, into as much like sort of literary theory and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I've also written uh, a number of essays and at this point a number of books about sort of how do the political institutions of the world of Planetos work and mm. what are some of the historical parallels that we can uh, see that Martin has sort of in his weird, uh, you know, uh, 90s DJ way remixed uh to produce this sort of very specific fantasy world well that's perfect for our podcast because um we are big history fans and we come in even though like uh evan and i are a bit more rome oriented fans of history <laughs> we, we we do um come in uh, with a more historical basis for this podcast like um for for this series of Ranking Thrones, we, we try to, we approach every king and queen who sat on the Iron Throne. Our, our criterion is that we, is that you have to sit on the Iron Throne and hold court. So Rhaenyra is qualified under that. And also, like by our definition, I was a bit surprised, but technically Tristane Truefire qualified <laughs> as, yeah. uh, as someone we had to count for this mm -hmm. series. But that also meant that Stannis, as of yet, does not count. Uh, neither does Renly. Like, we have no pretenders as of yet. That may be right. later on. And uh, we do have a come from a, a bit more historical oriented, because we also like to talk about how um, with definitely the earlier kings, we can definitely see who, who George R. R. Martin is inspired by. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, like, actual quotes from him of who he said he was inspired by for certain kings. Yeah. And so, because we have Stephen on before before we um, agreed to do this podcast, I just asked like who who do you do you want to talk about? And he came out with uh, three great, great answers of just like three great on the more obscure kings. Some deep cuts. Yeah, some deep cuts. <laughs> um, he he said they like uh, Viserys II, okay. uh, Aegon V, and also Jaehaerys II. Hmm. And uh, all of them are great picks. We, like we. We really um, loved Viserys II. We think he's um, like we we voted him like a to give you a head head down of like how our podcast works, Stephen. So mm -hmm. we go on um, several ten point categories. Of first category, after we go over the life of the their life story, 
We then go into the category of the king, which is a 10-point scale mm -hmm. of just like mm -hmm. how, and we measure how well they did as, as of just a king, just making decisions that were for the betterment of the realm. Then we, then we do the category of the warrior, another 10-point scale where we discuss, discuss just how good were you at making, uh, just leading and also being personally a fighter. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so sometimes, like, we, we give points. We gave a lot of points to Ares the First, even though he was not at all a fighter. He appointed the right people to fight his wars, so we gave points for that. Hmm, interesting. And so, yeah, that's important, because, like, if you are a good delegator, mm -hmm. like, that, that matters more when you're a ruler. Right. That didn't give him full marks, though. No. I mean, we also well, gave... Good marks. It's kind of like, kind of like what, what Tywin says. He says, a wise king knows what, he know, what he knows and knows what he doesn't. So if you're not a fighter, don't fight. <laughs> yeah. That's our attitude. Um, then we have the fun category of madness and misrule, where we just judge how they did, like how, how many big mistakes they made and how much was it also just a bit insanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's also a 10-point scale, but it's not a negative scale because this is all just technically a fictional world. And then we have a five-point scale of of the portrait where we just judge how, how they looked as a king, if they really matched and looked like a king in our eyes. And then the, the last thing is the final verdict, which is we determine exactly if they are... A dragon or a dud? Are they someone really special mm. that really shaped the history of Westeros, or are they ultimately kind of a footnote? Hmm. That's fun. We the biggest one that we had a dis disagreement on was um was on Darren the first. I said I thought he was a dragon, but ultimately Evan thought he wasn't, and so because it needs to be unanimous for our podcast, he uh -huh. did make the make the cut. Interesting. Yeah. Um, we've had a couple low scorers like Viserys. Like by his nature, we he didn't score very high, but we did give him the dragon credit. Mm -hmm. um, we also um, gave a lot of points to Aegon the Third, but we decided he kind of, even though he wasn't bad at the job, he wasn't really um, scream a lot of a big legacy. Yeah, he's really weird, and I I hope we learn more about him in. Uh, Fire and Blood Volume 2 just because his reign is described as like a broken reign. That yeah. like, stuff really went bad. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as like far as we can tell when we've seen him, he seems to be fairly competent. So I'm sort of curious as to like what went wrong and what went wrong that bad. Well, when we talked about it, we, we came out under the impression it was basically just that he himself was definitely a broken man per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But at the same I, time, like we, we gave him points of like, considering how much he had been through, he did astonishingly well with what he had. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, you know, he's, he's certainly, you know, deserves credit. Um, he's not up there with say Henry the sixth or, uh, hold on. I always forget this. Uh, mm -hmm. which of the French Kings, Charles, the sixth of France, the one yeah. who thought he was made of glass. Like, there have yeah, been kings who, like, you know, they have nervous breakdowns and they can't come back. Whereas, yeah. uh, you know, Aegon Third has always had a certain kind of... Poor George uh, III. Poor mm -hmm. George III, yeah. Yeah, I mean, George, you know, he, he had a relapse. Um, 
uh, you know, he had this sort of weird middle period where he he made his way back and then, you know, succumbed later on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Aegon III, I've, I've always thought, had a certain, uh, you know, I was wondering in terms of, like, historical parallels, like a certain kind of, like, Abraham Lincoln style of, like, manic depressive, hmm. but someone who can, you know, keep it in check long yeah. enough to be, you know, effective. But, you know, again, we don't know a lot about what was going on during his rule. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, the other thing uh, I said, like, we could talk forever, like, uh, about any of these kings. Um, I think the other thing about him, at least, was like, we, was that getting into one of your choices, like, it definitely also comes down to, like, he had one of the greatest hands of the kings and one of the greatest men of Westeros, Viserys, at his side, mm -hmm. to really, like, overcome his faults. Yeah. Of, like, yeah. if Viserys was not there, like, Aegon, Darren, and especially Baylor would have just, like, their reigns would have been disastrous. Yeah, and, I mean, you, you can even see this with, like, the Regency. Like, we know what, what you know, the, the government of Westeros looked like before Viserys you know, got his chance to be the kind of stall, uh, you know, bah, calming, yeah. uh, you know, uh, force, the sort of stable pivot around which policy could be made. So I yeah. imagine it would have been basically like continuing like that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think so, too. Um, so just getting into uh, the fun. I mean, your call, Stephen, like uh, I'm, I'm down just because you have such wonderful theories. Um. My first introduction to Stephen, just as a as a full disclosure, was um, listening to the wonderful podcast Unspoiled, and uh, we'd love to have the, um, the Unspoiled people come if they'd like to on our show. Um, friendly invite. Um, uh, when you talked about uh, Egg on the Fifth, so I'd love to talk about Egg again. I'd love sure. Talking about yeah, Egg. let's let's talk about Egg on the Fifth. Okay, uh, a, a figure that I find uh, sort of fascinating. Um, you know, there's a phrase that was used uh, of, I believe, George Washington, that he was the American Sphinx. Oh. Uh, that no one could really, you know, it, it was very hard to get a handle on him. And in some ways, like Aegon V, I, I find the, the sort of the Westerosi Sphinx, because we know, you know, in broad strokes what he did, but the historian me is deeply frustrated about not having the details, because oh, he yeah. has all of these sort of small folk reforms but we don't know what they included. And there's sort of a huge array of possibilities, you know, in terms of yeah. like historical parallels. Absolutely. So I've spent years writing about, you know, various kind of reforming, uh, mostly Kings of England, just because I think that's the most likely source that Martin was working from. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it could be anything from abolishing serfdom to expanding uh, you know, legal and judicial rights to, you know, town and city charters to, you know, uh, you know, abolishing the, the right of pit and gallows to, you know, who knows what, yeah. uh, but all that we're told, like we get the, the broader, um, kind of political climate when we get that phrase that, uh, he was described by Lords as a bloody handed tyrant intent on depriving us of our God's given rights and liberties, which is pretty much what the, you know, aristocracy of Europe described any monarch who tried to put any limits on them whatsoever. Yeah. Um, 
Evan and I, we really liked him for that. It was like saying, that's a good sign that he actually cared about the people. Yeah, and that was that was one of the sort of... Um, uh, do you go into the show at all? I mean, we do. Uh, uh, we, we talk about it because like uh, every episode I ask Evan if he can tell me, um, just as a non-book-oriented fan, if, if he knows anything about these kings. Yeah, so one of the like better uh, articles about the finale was kind of pointing out that the the sort of the political weirdness of having the res the sort of the resolution be the establishment of an electoral monarchy, which gives the nobility more power and sort of saying, you know, you look through Westerosi history. The problem is that not that the central government is too strong. It's too weak. Yeah. That it, it's not capable of really restraining its overmighty vassals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, speaking of of Aegon the Fifth, just to sort of drag us back on on track, like one of the things that Aegon the Fifth uh, did that was really unusual is he's one of the few cases of a king who intervened militarily in one of the seven kingdoms of Westeros, not because of like an external imba- uh, external invasion or a rebellion against the crown, but because. Uh, Tito's Lannister could not keep the king's peace. So it's sort of a rare example of the king actually kind of upholding that medieval feudal social contract of saying like, okay, I'm the king. It's my job to maintain the king's peace. Which that, that cost him the life of, of, uh, which one? Uh, no, not Jaehaerys. This one. Um, Aemon, Aemon Targaryen. Hmm? His son, his son Aemon. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame. I mean, yeah, he he definitely is like an interesting uh, character, and uh, I mean, like he's definitely the biggest. Like next to obviously Daenerys, he is the most developed uh, that Martin has really gone into for for a king. But, um, I mean, Stephen, like, uh, what do you think? Um, we talked about this a little bit early on, and you already mentioned some reformer kings. But I said, like, definitely, like, Egg is definitely one of the more interesting ones for... He doesn't seem to have any, like, direct, like, parallel that I can exactly pinpoint. Yeah, I mean, so... The, the one that, that I yeah. thought of immediately that he seems the most like, in terms of both, like, kind of, like, story structure... And a little bit like the legend of being a reformer king is a uh, the legendary, but he is somewhat based on real life of uh, King Arthur. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, that that was my first uh, jumping off point is that the like the half a peasant thing, the sort of you know that really you know fits in with Arthurian myth, where the whole point is that like you know you're supposed to have this uh, hidden monarch who you know lives a life of a peasant and therefore is humble and not overly proud and understands his people. And then, you know, he'll, he'll be discovered and then, you know, everything will be hunky dory. Um, which is kind of interesting because, you know, uh, it makes me wonder like to what extent, uh, Aegon the fifth influenced Varys at all. And like his whole model of what a perfect prince should look like. Well, well, definitely if we look at, um, and this is spoilers or non-spoilers for, for Evan, because this is a whole wholly different from the show, mm-hmm. but definitely with um, 
Aegon the Sixth, or Fagon, as Reddit has dubbed him. Or I, I prefer the the newest uh, version of this I've seen, Young Grift. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I personally think he is who he says he is, just because like I can see it possibly playing out. But like at the same time, even if he's a fake, I, I do like some recent theories. Like, uh, I think it was uh, to name drop. Um, no, not Davos Fingers, the other great um, chapter by chapter podcast. Uh, Girls uh, on Canon. Uh, that one. Not a cast. Not a cast. Yeah, not a cast. Like theorizes that that's part of the part of the charm of of theoretically when we get it, and we we we're patiently waiting. George R. R. Martin, you're not our bitch. We're your bitch, as Evan figured out. Um, that that like even if 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 Aegon is really a Blackfire, and even if he isn't even a Blackfire, it's like, it. the people don't care at this point. Right. And, That's... like, considering that they've already said, like, Joffrey is king, it's like, and Tommen, it's like, we don't care, as long as he's not a... a horrible monster. Yeah, well, that's that's the whole thing with him being the Mummer's Dragon, is it really is more about what people believe than the the actual literal you know substantive truth yeah and Varys, to his credit like he definitely from what people have interpreted he is training him to be the next aegon the fifth of like he is raised by peasants he is not really ever known luxury he's, yeah he's I mean, definitely gotten the better version of what like viserys and daenerys have had for yeah, like he's, desperate he's upbringing of, yeah I, I i would push back a little bit i mean he's been raised by nobility right you know john oh, connington yeah, yeah, yeah. is still a nobleman it, it's yeah. more that he just like y you can see Varys like trying to like find some sort of middle ground which is that he understands that like okay um you know we need he needs to be able to do the noble thing right he needs the right education he needs to be a knight he needs to be trained in the faith of the seven. He needs to understand history and all this stuff. But then he also needs to know what it's like to be poor and to be hungry and to be afraid. Um, which is all like getting back to to egg, which was what Dunk recognized. And like yeah. people like Dunk very much had a simpleton mind for when it came to politics. But, like, when it came to people, he understood people very much so. Yeah. And he just knew that, like, Egg Egg was, like... Well, he already had all the, the kind of lordly training he ever needed in his years before he met Dunk. And he just said, like, well, look. Like, as, as we talked about in that wonderful moment in the Hedge Knight, it's just, like, Arian and Darren, they they got that all that luxury, and that, that didn't make them good people, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of my uh, favorite um, monologues in Martin's work because I think it does, you know, I think it speaks to a certain truth about the way that um, inherited wealth and privilege kind of have this corrosive effect. You know, you, you can be a good person, you know, individually, morally speaking, but it really does warp you a little bit. Uh, because you're not, you know, your your perspective is limited, and you're not used to dealing with consequences. And yeah. you know, Egg, God love him, you know, he 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 saw what uh, life was like for 
you know, 95% of the population in a way that really no one else in his family uh, ever had before. Yeah. Well, that's what makes him, like, very much qualified to be a king. And... Yeah. Okay. Um, like... Although it's, you know, it, uh, again, speak, getting back to that, like, whole thing of uh, him being seen as a bloody-handed tyrant, like, it's interesting that that was the major political weakness uh, that made it... Uh, him so unlikely to become king in the uh, Great uh, Council of 233. Yeah. Um, and, like, one of the, like, mysteries that I hope uh, gets a little bit unraveled is, like, what was exactly going on at that Great Council? Because, you know, we now know that, like, Bloodraven was murdering people under safe, you know, uh, yeah. after offering them safe escort, you know, there might have been some weird, like, Blackfire attempt to like get elected to the the Iron Throne. Uh, yeah. We don't know what happened to like a lot of the other candidates. Like, there's this big asterisk around um, his uh, nephew Magor. Oh well, well like, to be fair, like he was Arian's son, and they named him Magor. Yeah, but like <laughs> literally, we don't know what happens to him. Like, yeah. He, he oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. He disappears from history as, like, a, a nine-year-old. Um, Same with uh, Darren's daughter, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, she disappears. And all of these sort of lesser candidates who are always fascinating. Uh, I love the one who showed up. Uh, like, all these people who show up with, like, forged paperwork from some yeah. of the earlier ones. Just because, you know, that that really was, like, a problem that the, the Middle Ages had to deal with. It's like, we think of identity theft as a very modern problem. But, like... Imagine a world in which, you know, no one's got social security numbers. There's no way to check who anyone is. There's no so, DNA test. So it's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there, there were some amazing cases like of uh, con men who like persuade people that they were, you know, the king of Portugal. Oh, gosh. And yeah. like get away with it for about, you know, five, ten years. Uh, well, before going to check. my friends, the Romans, there was like three Nero imposters. Yeah, and of course, you know, uh, speaking of sort of uh, young Grift, you know, we've uh, in the Wars of the Roses, you've got, or technically right after the Wars of the Roses, you've got these two uh, impersonators of the dead princes in the tower. Yeah. Uh, Perkin Warbeck and, and Lambert Simnel, uh, who were such a headache for uh, Henry VII. Yeah. Well, actually, okay, kind of getting into a tiny bit real history, you, you alluded mm -hmm. to it earlier. I just want your opinion, Stephen. And sure. uh, Evan, feel free to chime in also. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. uh, honestly, okay, just like my understanding of like looking at basis on the criterion of an embarrassment of if we try to extrapolate the real story of King Arthur from like what we have. Oh, okay. Like, okay. Yeah. I think King Arthur was not at all King Uther's son. I think he was just this total like, like Queen Egraine's son from like the previous husband okay. and i think he was like no like he didn't have any claim to the throne i he mean was just a pretender the i mean to be honest like depending on which version you go to like the whole um you know thing of him being uh, a pendragon at all is a relatively late addition to the story yeah so like, yeah. you go back to the earliest you know all we know is that you know there's this guy you know Arthur, and he supposedly fought the Saxons at the Battle of Baden in a text that was like 300 years out of date. Um, you know, he could be related to 
uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus. Like we, oh, yeah. you know, we don't know. Yeah. Um. I mean, yeah, it's body records, obviously. Right. Yeah, I mean, kind of beyond spot. You know, this is the period in which you know the the difference between history and fanfic is is pretty loose because you know you you start going into like, uh, you know, uh, Jeffrey of Monmouth, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, you got wizards, you got snake people, you know, and and this is <laughs> yeah. just like, oh yeah, that's history, right? You know, everyone totally knows that like, you know, there's there's like random wizards running around the country, and you know. Castles are shaking down. There might be a dragon in the foundations. Like that's the, that's the, uh, you know, the kind of the way that people viewed these sort of famous uh, matters. Yeah. Well, uh, going back a little bit to Egg on the Fifth, um, like you you mentioned earlier, and like uh, we haven't discussed really the because we don't really focus on the the show that much per se, but you, you talked earlier about how the weakness of the central central government itself. Yeah. Which, like, that's a weird thing where the show, show Joffrey is actually kind of has a point. Yeah, I mean, he's got a point in that, you know, but it, it's more that just, like, he doesn't understand any of the steps to get where he wants. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and the problem is, if you don't do any of the pre... If you don't do the pre-work then all of your attempts to get to where you want to go lead to rebellions against you as a bloody-handed tyrant. Exactly. Um, you know, so, and he really is a bloody-handed tyrant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Joffrey, yeah, no no yeah. arguments there. Like, uh, but... Like, that was something that, like, Egg recognized, I think, is that he needed what, obviously, Jaehaerys and Aegon the Conqueror had, which yeah. is just the dragons, which just makes them clearly have that that you what theodore roosevelt said is like speak softly but carry a big stick yeah so and, and poor egg on the fifth doesn't have that big stick because the armies like are all technically vassals of the lords and not him right and so, so he can't really compel the lords to go along with his reforms and this is where it's also his son's faults because like oh yeah well well my sons will solve that by marrying the lord so then they'll be pleased and go along with mm-hmm. it yeah, so um, way back, uh, God, when was this essay written? God, 2013. So it's been it's been a while. Um, okay, yeah. One of the first essay series I wrote was called Hollow Crowns and Deadly Thrones, which was <laughs> my attempt to like understand the the Westerosi monarchy as an institution um, before originally um, the World of Ice and Fire came out. So oh, okay. I, I I ended up writing uh, like a supplementary essay basically recontextualizing everything that I'd written. Um, but one of the sort of ideas I put forward is that the original Targaryen monarchy is a dracocracy, right? It's ruled by dragon. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, and everything about it is set up that way. You know, not just sort of what is the basis of, like, the monopoly on power, but, like, mm. you see in the in the royal progresses on Dragonback, yeah. like... You're su- not just supposed to like go out and use the dragons violently, but like the the show of dragons is important to like impressing everyone that they have to you know listen to you and obey you. And when the dragons died, there were a whole I argue a whole series of efforts to try to find a new foundation for the monarchy. So, you know, initially under Aegon the Third, they try to 
Um, first of all, bring try back to the dragons. bring back the dragons. That doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so you start to see more dynastic marriages. Um, less in the way of incest, more marriages to the other great houses. Yeah. Um, it works for a little bit, uh, but then you see a number of very different approaches. So Daron the first, right, his whole project is, you know, nationalistic warfare, right? If you yeah. go out and you unite the country to fight Dorn, you sort of redirect violence outwards. Out, you know, sort right. of the, the uh, crusades, you know, yeah, strategy. That is, that is exactly the crusades. Right. And uh, Baylor the Blessed you know, tries to use religious piety instead. So more the kind of like St. Louis the, the Ninth approach. But unfortunately, St. Louis was a good king and Baylor was not. Well, St. Louis had some, uh, he had some uh, big failures. As yeah. Um, oh. Left, left a lot of armies dying of, of dysentery. Um, anyway, point being, you know, you have a, a number of failures or, yeah. you know, like uh, abortive attempts, really, I think is the better way to put it. Uh, then you have, you know, Viserys II, who is, you know, a pragmatic bureaucrat. He's trying to, like, you know, rebuild the kingdom a little bit. And he just doesn't last very long. No. Uh, you know, maybe if he'd had more than two years, he could have done a better job, but it's just left un incomplete. And then you run headlong into Aegon IV, who is just oh, a disaster. Oh, boy. Um, so it's sort of a whole series of failures. And then Aegon V is like trying to solve this riddle. And, yeah. you know, he has a number of strategies. So dynastic marriages is absolutely one of them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sadly, I think the, the, the doom of his reign is trying to go back to that original solution of dragons. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, that's the problem is that like, he doesn't, have the means to force compliance anymore and you know especially after the blackfire rebellions like now that you know the king is not just the sort of the is is not the unquestioned ruler of westeros when there's a whole other alternative yeah mm -hmm. you know you can't necessarily um you know issue your decrees and have them stick even if you know you show up with a royal army all the time and we know that egg on the fifth spent most of his reign, um, you know, in his saddle, putting down rebellions, you know, so, one after the other. Yeah. So one of the things I, I said, like, uh, that Evan came to really like about him, me, and what I really think is, full bias disclosed, is like, is that Aegon V was probably the only king named Aegon who was really worthy of that name and was really similar I think, to what we know of, of Aegon the Conqueror, of that, from all that we know, like, Aegon was a great war military leader, but he did not like fighting at all. Right. Like, and he really would have rather not have been a wartime leader that his kind of father wished to be. And he he basically strikes me as just like that, but what you talked about of just like the, the, the tragedy of him is that, and what we talked about before we started recording is like the, the great tragedy is that his, is like, we, we talked about it, is like his sons, oh gosh, his sons, and where like the, the, the personal characteristics come into this system of monarchy and why the monarchy is so flawed is because of that you don't have a bureaucracy to defend against personal defects. 
Right. Of that, like, and I'm I'm kind of like, and Evan, you you chime in if you want, but like, mm. I'm forgiving more of Duncan than I am of Jaharis. Yes. And like, D- Duncan is just like, well, Dad, I want to marry who I want to marry, and Aegon is just like, son, you can't marry a peasant. Like, yeah. don't marry a peasant. Please I, don't marry a peasant. I, I would say the other thing about Duncan is, like, at least he accepts the consequences. Yeah, absolutely. He's like, all right, I will abdicate. Which, you know, that is right. a big step down. Um, whereas, like, Jaehaerys not only, you know, knew what he was getting into. Gosh, you know, oh, yeah. Had, yeah. had the previous example of uh, Lionel Baratheon's rebellion to be like, this is why you should not do this. Yeah. Goes ahead and does it anyway. You know, alienates now two houses instead of just the one. Yeah. Um, marries his sister. Yeah, marries his yeah. sister. Um, and, you know, the result is that, like, all of Aegon's plans are destroyed. Yeah. And the thing that I find sort of really fascinating is, you know, when he becomes... Um, Hold on. Was this when he becomes king, or does this come after? No, it was. It was when Aegon was well, Aegon was king. Okay, so as Prince of Dragonstone is a massive hypocrite with his own children. That is because, like what, what yeah. we, we did not forgive him. Like, and I don't forgive him. Is like, it's like, yeah. it's like that, that's why he's better. Duncan is better because like Duncan, for all we know, like doesn't seem to be a hypocrite. Yeah. No. There's an admirable consistency there. Yeah. At least like it's like it's like well. We we don't know if he had any kids. Maybe we will find out. But like, like Jaharis is like what? And like I love like the world of ice and fire. They actually say that like Aegon was just like so disgusted by this and just washed his hands, saying like not my fault, not my fault. Yeah, I mean to be fair, at this point, like I I think what they'd seen the difference of was that they not only wed secretly but consummated their marriage. So it's like. There is nothing you can do about this now. Yeah. You know, they, they had, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give them credit that far. They were, uh, they were very, very, very uh, insistent yeah. that this not be undone in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Well, well no, that's, but that's for Jaharis. Like, when, when, like, when then Jaharis announces, like, oh, yeah, Ares is going to marry Rayla. It's like, Aegon is just like, okay, yep, I don't have any control over this. But I am not responsible for this. Yeah, you whatever sort of, happens, it's your fault, my son. Yeah, not mine. Uh, and what's again the sort of like some of the mysteries of Aegon the Fifth reign that I'm really curious about is why the Woods Witch is so prominent. Like you'd think that you know, given that she is the servant of this very controversial peasant princess, who yeah. like help to bring about a rebellion and cause the king to lose his heir. Like you, you might expect them to be banished. You might expect, you know, but no, she's around and people are listening to her and making really important policy decisions on the basis of what she says is going to, you know, save the world. I think because like, it wasn't just that, that she also talked about the prince who was promised. I think it was also that she told something that Aegon, by the end, had to resort to liking to hear, which is like, oh yeah, the dragons are going to hatch. I've seen it. The dragons will hatch. Right. And uh, going into your theory, which I'd love to hear you talk full about, is um, 
Summer Hall, which is like she also okay, did yeah. say the the uglier side of of like probably, which is um, something Martin has like very wonderfully trolled about us, all all book readers and fans in general is like, what does it take to hatch a dragon egg? And it, it's probably blood. It's probably sacrifice. Yeah. So and so, and like for for Daenerys, what 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 did it take? It took Miri Mazdur and the bodies of Rago and Dr and Drogo and Drogo. So maybe maybe what was Aegon the Fifth thinking when he got those dragon eggs and his all of his aunts, all of his family there at Summerhall? Yeah, so my whole theory on this, and it's like very bleak and depressing. Yeah, is uh, I think Aegon was attempting a human sacrifice. Yeah, um, I think you know, and and this is the sort of you know, you you die a hero, you live long enough to be to see yourself become a villain. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he was at the point of desperation, and you know, thought that there was no alternative. And it's this very much this question that Martin keeps asking throughout the series. You know, what is the life of one child against the whole realm? Yeah. And so I think he was going to sacrifice. I, I'm sorry, trying to find my own theory here. Uh, yeah, I think he was going to try and sacrifice baby Rhaegar. Yeah. Um, and it all goes horribly wrong. And I think basically Dunk stops him. Yeah. And manages to save baby Rhaegar and unfortunately also saves Eris. And <laughs> which is like part of like the where Martin doesn't like he will never let being a hero, like a full hero of I think one of the brilliant moments in the world of Ice and Fire and like uh, just uh, in the regular books, because he did it previously in a dance of with dragons, is that like Barrison the Bold's greatest moment of heroism ever of like the defiance of Duskendale and what he did is for the most unworthy and horrible of Kings. So it's like, you were such a great hero and you were the perfect example of what the Kingsguard is supposed to do, but you did it for the most unworthy of Kings. <laughs> so it's like, what does it, it's kind of like, what's the balance? Yeah. That's sort of a, a running thread too. Cause like, who's the greatest Kings Knight of all time, right? It's Aegon yeah. Dragon Knight. Who does he die saving the life of? Yeah. Aegon the Fourth, the unworthy. Yeah. You know, he, he he doesn't get a chance to die to save, you know, Daron or Baylor or like anybody who's who might be worth a damn. He dies saving the like, you know, obese tyrant who brutalizes the sister he loves. It's horrible. Yeah. But like I, I think that's where, you know. Uh, sometimes I think in the fandom we bandy around deconstruction a little bit too much yeah. without really thinking about what that means. And, you know, what I would say is that it, it's not that, you know, Martin thinks that, like, honor is stupid or that heroism doesn't exist. It's more that he thinks that the, the sort of the morality of it is separate from the, from the outcome. Yeah. Right? That doing the right thing is the right thing to do regardless of whether you ever get recognized or rewarded from it. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we see this, I would argue, throughout the series. It's there in the Brotherhood uh, Without Banners. It's there in the Night's Watch. And, you know, it's there in Serial Pharrell. So I think he's been sort of teaching us from the beginning. But uh, sometimes we kind of uh, overextend the lesson. 
Yeah, I mean, it's also in there in like the the message of and looking forward to Fire and Blood Volume Two, but it's there in in uh, in Jamie's story, and oh, yeah. it's also there in um, Viserys the Second of that. Like, and I totally believe the rumor that the World of Ice and Fire puts forward is yeah, like Baylor was planning a crusade right before Viserys ah. had had to do what was necessary. So, right. so he damns like, no. himself in order to to uh, you know save yeah. the realm. Although then, like Viserys, thankfully or unthankfully, then I like, got forgiven by Westeros when his son took over. Yeah, he gets a sort of uh, retroactive reputation facelift. Yeah, and was like, oh, wait a minute. Mm. Even if what he did to Baylor, he that was still way better than his son. Yeah, Robert gets the same thing. It's it's funny. I'm I'm currently writing my essay on uh, Arya Six of A Storm of Swords, which is the big uh, duel between. Uh, Beric and Darian and the Hound. Oh yeah. And one of the things that's really interesting in that is that like the Brotherhood without banners have have made Robert in Robert Baratheon into this like mythical good king. Yeah. You know, who would you know who's all about justice and the realm? And Sandor Clegane is there like he didn't like you know he didn't understand anything if he couldn't fight it or fuck it. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah. And that really does get to, like, the sort of the two natures of the king, right? There's, like, who the yeah. person actually was, and then there's who everyone believes them to have been. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's a little bit like the the man who shot Liberty Valance, right? You know, when the, when the facts become legends, sometimes you print the legend. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, hey, that that's part of, like, uh, getting into, like, why Martin's a great writer is because, like, that the, the two-pronged thing of that, of that, of that, if, if you like your theory, which I think is very much on the mark, like the only other thing I could think Summerhall possibly of being is just the Lords saying, like, we cannot let the dragons to hatch no matter what. Yeah. Like, I could see that, but I don't think Martin will go that way just because that's a bit more typical and that will make Egg I, unquestionably I think it's more a hero. Just the, the thematics don't work as well, right? If the whole point yeah. is the human heart at war with itself, you know, some evil nobles who need to be you know who who attempt an assassination is not a con it, it's an external conflict but it's not an interior conflict mm -hmm. if someone decides to do you know if Aegon decides to do something evil for a good reason that is an enormous internal conflict absolutely uh so and that's, it's also that's kind of always for, for what do you do do you follow your king or do you do what is right yeah and that's why you know i always sort of say like, if you're trying to figure out, like, what's going to happen or what theory makes the most sense, I think that, like, two rules of thumb always to go with are, you know, what is the most kind of, uh, like, outlandish, depressing, <laughs> violent version on the one hand, and on the other hand, what it, where do you get the most human heart at war with itself? Yeah. That's a good question, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll speculate, but... And we're eagerly awaiting whatever George R. R. Martin gives us next. Honestly, if what we got was Fire and Blood Volume 2 or another Dunkin' Egg, I would be happy, personally. I know everyone's waiting for wins, and I am waiting for wins, too. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. Um, we've talked a lot, but let's get into the categories just to get your, your thoughts on like sure. each of the other categories. So, um, my notes for uh, Egg for each of them. Uh, 
in the category of the king, he ruled for 26 years, so he automatically gets 26 points for that. Okay. And uh, you 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 de- deserve every point for every year you ruled because mm-hmm. it is very hard to rule consistently. Yeah. And um, and so after that, then though the category is um, in my notes. Um, he and Sir Duncan helped end the second Blackfire Rebellion without it being a, a war. At the age of right. 10, he cowed a lord into submission and caused another to flee. Which, that, I think, is something that was, like, such a... I didn't understand the first time reading and really appreciating was, like, such an... of why I think Blood Raven immediately took notice of Egg. And, and I and kind of think to, a little bit, like, my own him. theory. I think... Blood Raven might have kind of helped make sure that Egg succeed. I'm yeah, to the Iron yeah I would agree. Um, although again, did attempt to kidnap him. Yeah. What? Uh, oh, oh, the other lords. No, no, no. I'm saying like Blood Raven was like gonna kidnap him to force Magor into com- uh, Makar into compliance, and then sort of changed his oh, yeah. mind. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, because he didn't trust Makar, but yeah. Um, I mean, that is so awesome, though, like, for a moment, just if we can sit back and appreciate it. Yeah. I'm just like that, like, he's he's 10, and he's just, like, suddenly brought in front of these lords, and they're like, and he doesn't know what's going on either. And he's right. like, oh, um, uh, my father sent me here as a spy. And like we know what you're doing, so surrender now. Yeah, it's a it's a, a very impressive bluff. Yeah. So yeah, way to go. Um, the the next one uh, for notes I put on. He was beloved by the people and brought reforms that were pop were to the people's benefit. We do not have details on of these reforms, but they were not popular with the lords. So, yeah, the great mystery and why we need... I don't know, like, that, that's the one thing. I don't know how much George R. R. Martin will want to do of Fire and Blood Volume 2 for Egg's Rule. Yeah, I mean, I, so I think the big question mark there is, like, how much does George want to save for his Duncan Egg stories? Because yeah. that was the same thing with Fire and Blood. He, like, he... A lot of the stuff that got cut out of Fire and Blood was, like the Reign of Aegon the Fifth and Summer Hall, because uh, yeah. he wanted to save that. So, you know, it's possible Obviously. that we won't get much. But, you know, if, if George wants to, like, sit down with some uh, historical, um, you know, uh, experts to, like, help him decide what these reforms are, you know, call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure Elio and Linda do know what happened at Summer Hall, but I think they're also smart to, like, not say... Mm. Yeah, but yeah, um, Barristan the Bold thought he was the only king that he served what, that was worthy of being king. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like Barristan the Bold, that is like part of his, his greatness and his tragedy is that like none of the kings he he served under really were worthy of of like as great of a king's guard as him. Yeah, like Jaharis was not really was like mediocre king at best and like robert and like aries we know how bad aries was robert i think gets a bit of a bad rep 
like he was much more competent king than he really gives credit to himself for. But still kind of middle tier. Yeah, yeah, middle tier at best. Yeah. Like no no no. He was no he was no Jaharis. And then like like Joffrey, and then like yeah. And we'll see where, where Daenerys falls in that category. Yeah. Although we kind of have a hint of where Martin may be taking Daenerys down. Maybe. Uh, you know, I have a whole theory about events in the final season being swapped around in order, but which I think changes some of those implications. Yeah. I can see that. I can see, like, um, like uh, some people have said that, like, Daenerys will go down that path, but uh, it could just be that that she goes down that path also be, also because she there's already another new king on the Iron Throne that people love that's calling himself Aegon Targaryen. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And uh, and so it's just like it's like what? No, I'm the real Targaryen. It's like well, he says he's the real Targaryen. So mm. yeah, um, it, it it's more than just like my thinking about King's Landing is. You know, we we know that like Martin thinks that the army of the dead is the threat, yeah, and that means it'll probably happen last. And so, you know, you need King's Landing to be this thing that like, you know, is where Daenerys looks into the abyss but doesn't fall in. Oh, you know, because like she she's still got more she's got to do, so you can't completely <laughs> you can't completely throw them into villainy. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's all kinds of speculation about, like, you know, how, how long does Barristan have? Yeah. You know, is he going to make it out of Marine? Question mark. No, I don't think so. I think he's going to make it... He, he won't go the way he went in the book, in the show, obviously. But I don't think so. I think he's... I think Marine is kind of it for him. Mm-hmm. And he'll still have faith in Daenerys, but then, like, that'll be kind of what, what losing Jorah in the show is a little bit. Of just more and more of just losing the people that she trusts right. and just alienation. Yeah, I could see that. But we'll see. <laughs> he had the potentially disastrous rebellion of the Laughing Storm end with a single trial by combat. Right. Which... That's really clever and brilliant. And he also like, wins. He he fights well in the you know with distinction in the third rebel, uh, Blackfire Rebellion, and ends the fourth Blackfire Rebellion very uh, uh, emphatically is the wrong decisively. The fourth Blackfire Rebellion, well, well, that like that's some more of a for the warrior category. Yeah, but like in terms of like that of, like, what will be put in for the king category is he crushed the fourth Blackfire Rebellion, Lord Lionel's uprising, and an, and an uprising led by the men known as the Rat, the Pig, and the Hawk, all very decisively. Yeah. And so, like, there were definitely wars in his time period, but they all ended so quickly and in a Jaehaerys-like fashion that they don't seem like wars. Mm-hmm. So, what would you say, Stephen? Like, what would you give him out of ten? Um... As as a king goes, yeah. Um, hmm. I don't know. Probably, I'd say like at least an eight, right? Yeah, that, that sounds good to to me. Yeah, 
Like so, I'm gonna double your score so like we can see how it compares to what we gave him. Okay. So you give him an eight, so sixteen. Um, okay. We'll go at the end like of comparison. Next category is um, the warrior. So he won every war he fought and was a very good warrior, but he did not seem to enjoy battle like Magor. He was more like Aegon the Conqueror and Rhaegar of just he fought but he didn't relish and revel in it at all. He fought bravely and showed himself as a leader in the third Blackfire Rebellion, which was probably, again, like what Bloodraven noticed of like, hmm, and like Dunk's education and like being his teacher really paid off of like that. This is him showing his qualities of being a worthy king. Yeah. And that's also like, a, just like pause. Like, I love how teasing and trolling Martin is and for describing the third Blackfire Rebellion. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm just how it's like, everyone knows how great, like, how great Aegon was in the war. Everyone, everyone knows how uh, great. Like, uh, the, the battle between Bloodraven and Bittersteel was for the second time, so we're not going to talk about it. It's yeah. like, Martin, you wonderful troll. Um, Evan, like, uh, so you're, 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 you're running low. Do you want to say one last thing before you... Well, I, was, I do want to say that it, it's amazing how so many perspectives on one king get told by different uh, society, and then the funniest part is how many of them are actually true to the real person is insane. Yeah. Very true. Well, that's the fun of history. Mm -hmm. So, uh, thanks for joining us, Evan. Yes, I'm going to have to sign off, guys. Enjoy. I look forward to hearing the rest of this amazing, amazing uh, uh, analysis. Okay. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. All right. Peace. Peace. So, um, continuing on, Stephen. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, uh, I'm curious uh, if we can pause always just to hear your perspective. I mean, you you obviously know know a lot and think a lot about the the Blackfire rebellions. Yeah. Like, um, so, just like I want to hear your thoughts on like how like from what we know about the third versus the fourth. Of like the third seems to me at least to be like the last time like the Blackfire Rebellion really was a legitimate threat. Yeah, it was certainly sort of the high water mark. Um, it was probably where they got closest to winning after the first. Uh, it's when they seem to have the most support. I mean, you know, th there's. I mean, I, I wrote a whole essay series about the Blackfire Rebellions, but like, you know, you definitely see that. You know the you know, because of the reign of, of Eris the first, you know, like there were yeah. a lot of people with grievances against the monarchy. Well, uh, legitimate grievances. Yeah. With legitimate grievances. And that always kind of is good for uh, a rebel faction. Um, whereas, you know, by the fourth rebellion, you know, I, I think there's a lot that we don't know about bad luck. Um, it does seem like that they sort of didn't necessarily land in the best place. And, may have gotten a little bit screwed over um, in terms of some of their supporters. 
but you know they get shut down very very quickly and have to leave almost immediately um so me, at least what, what i read into yeah. of, of the scant information we get is that uh egg becomes king during one of the worst times to become king of a brutal winter right but but they say that egg really went out of his way to make sure that everyone did not suffer during this winter yeah and, th- and that's I, the thing is you, you know a lot of this stuff is is more uh symbolic is not the right way but like demonstrative yeah right you need to show what side you're on and you know egg like that was never egg's problem was showing what side he was on whereas yeah. i feel like with eris the first like there were you know genuine question marks about like did he actually give a damn about anybody uh, who wasn't a book. Yeah. I- I'm kind of, like, when we look at him, I'm just questioning, like, why did he even accept being king? Why didn't he just abdicate? Like, uh, why? Yeah, there's a lot of questions about that. I mean, one possibility is that, like, he was really into occult stuff. Blood Raven wanted him to be king. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they worked out some sort of quid pro quo about, like, look, you know, as long as you run everything so that I don't have to, you know, and like you help me out with my weird, uh, you know, arcane research, then yeah. fine. Because um, I think a lot of this did have to do with with like who Blood Raven wanted to be king. Yeah. Not as much, you know, what Eris the First himself wanted. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, Blood Raven is is the like it's rumors, but like the rumors are right. Like Blood Raven is the king, but kind of like from a hindsight, like it would have been so much better if if they just had made make our king right then and there and blood yeah. his hand like the realm would have been so much better off yeah well i mean that's the the thing and i've i've talked a little bit about this when um oh god i was on some podcast and we were talking about the the mystery night like you know there was this period where you know all of the sudden you know the royal court shifts from being i'm mean, basically with the, with the the great spring sickness you know, you you have like one set of advisors, you know, yeah. dominated by various Dornish factions, and then all of a sudden, boom, everyone's dead, and yeah. like Blood Raven is the only one with any influence. Yeah, and you've got senses that like the High Septon and Makar are not happy about this situation, um, and they're like completely frozen out of political power. Yeah, uh, and it all happens, I think, within about a three year period. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and in that period, like Blood Raven basically sets up a medieval police state. Um, it's, yeah. You know, there, you know, he, he was very decisive, uh, but, you know, I don't know necessarily the most uh, benevolent ruler that Westeros ever had. Yeah, he was he was definitely like ultimately, though, a better Tywin than like Tywin. But he was like, of yeah. that, of, like Tywin Elk. I mean, you know, I think he had a little bit less of Tywin's attitude. Like, you know, for all that Tywin sort of pretends that he's sort of cold and calculating, like, you know, an inch below the surface, he's just this like massive ball of insecurity. Yeah. Um, and that sort of drive, you know, that kind of emotion really actually does drive a lot of his actions. Whereas I think, you know, Blood Raven really was driven by this sort of very. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, this kind of cold realpolitik, often sort of too cold yeah. for his own good. Oh, definitely. Because, like, yeah, well, well, we talked about it, but, like, the execution of Amy's Blackfire was, like, on paper that makes sense. 
But just like in reality, that's like no, that's what that's what caused the fourth Blackfire Rebellion. I mean, it, like, it makes sense in like very in the very short term. Yeah, it, it, you know, if if you're trying to like prevent more civil wars from happening, it's actually the wrong thing because you know when you start to go down that road of you know no one can trust anyone, then all of a sudden you know you're in a war of all against all territory. Absolutely, yeah. So, what we're saying, basically, to get back to the point, is like the Fourth Blackfire Rebellion strikes me. It's both a combination of of egg and Dunk and all his people there being just brilliant. Of just, we know where they're going. Let's hit them right now. But also the people just being like, no, we don't care about you. Like our king actually cares about us, so we're not going to f- side with you. Yeah. So just go away. I do like one uh, Reddit fan theory, though, that maybe Dunk might be exiled at one point and meet Damon III. Mm. And, like, this one Redditor theory thinks that, like, Damon III might become when... uh, Because uh, Martin said that one of his Dunkin' Egg books will be called The Sellsword. Ah. Is that Dunk might be become either as a spy... Or legitimately become a member of the Golden Company. <laughs> oh, that really would be like Dunk is the Forrest Gump of Westeros. Yeah, like, absolutely. He's there for everything. Yeah, and so while he's in the Golden Company, he of course sees Bittersteel, but he also sees Damon the Third, who becomes his new egg. And that would add to the where I could see well, that, this that very Martin the, thing of like the, the tragedy of like yeah of just like that that Dunk has to choose between who am I going to side with, Egg or Damon. And both want him on their their sides, and Dunk ultimately chooses Egg, but that's not easy. Yeah. I could see that. I could see that. And so, yeah, he, he, he led and was able to end the Fourth Blackfire Rebellion with Sir Duncan personally slaying Damon III. Which we talked about how that might be even more tragic than we already think. So, what do you think for the warrior? What do you think? Uh... Remind me the scale again. Out of ten. Uh, I probably you know eight, between eight or nine. Okay, so eight and a half, would you say? Yeah, about there. Okay. So next category, the more infamous category, which gets into the the negative side, but it's also a positive ten point scale. Madness and misrule. So. Ooh. Because- this is tricky. Yeah, so because we don't have anything truly detailing what ultimately happened at Summer Hall, we cannot know if he really went mad. Yeah, this may have to be like one of those baseball home uh, Hall of Fame, you know, things with an asterisk next to it. Yeah, you know, because it it could be ten, it could be zero. It's very hard to say. If we assume the worst, i.e., what your your theory, which I think is on the mark, if we assume the worst. He did seem to plan to do awful things for the good of the realm. Right. Like, it's not like that kind of Tywin, like for the Tywin slash Stannis sacrificing Shireen for the good of the realm. This is like legitimately, I am going to do this because then I will have dragons and then I can push forward my reforms. Right. Uh, It's sort of, you know, dragon madness, but for a purpose. Yeah. The best version of dragon madness. Right. You can argue his unwillingness to force his sons and daughter to marry who he wanted 
to caused great discord for the realm. Right. The lords hated him, yep. which is important. Although I think that's a positive. <laughs> yeah, I do too. But like, it's like, well, they hated him for all the right reasons. Yeah. Uh, you know, given that like, you know, th this is the sort of thing that I always, uh, you know, say about like anyone who asks me, you know, oh, what time in history would you have liked to have been alive? I'm like, look, you know, everyone thinks like in their past life they were a king or a queen or a high priest or whatever. It's like yeah. 90, you know, your odds are really good that you're going to be a dirt peasant. Absolutely. So always consider, you know, that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully you live under somewhat a ruler who actually cares about the dirt peasants. Even remotely. And uh, although a peaceful man at heart, his reign was plagued with wars and rebellions. And uh, Stephen, are you there? Yeah. Okay. And he seems to embody the difficult reality, and I think this is quintessentially George R. R. Martin, is he seems to embody the difficult reality that a good man is not necessarily a good ruler. Yeah. It's like a Aegon V, Robert, Ned Stark, all these men are like, and like Sir Barristan, they're all like, and even I guess Jon Snow, ultimately, with what happened in the Dance with the Dragons, like these are good men, but they're just maybe they're not cut out for the job of ruling. And Egg of of all the ones I've listed is like definitely the one that has more of like the qualities of being a ruler. I think maybe Jon Snow also. Yeah. I mean, I mean Robert too. Like Robert definitely like. When he was being a wartime leader, it seemed obvious he was like, this is the perfect man to be our king. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, what, what makes Robert sort of slightly different is that, like, you don't get a lot of examples of Robert doing selfless stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he'll, he'll go out and fight a war, but that's mostly because he views rebellion as like a personal insult. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, with with you know, Egg with Ned, uh, with, with Jon Snow, like there are tons and tons of examples where they're like, you know, they're putting the good of the realm ahead of their own personal best interest. Well, the one thing I would maybe quibble with you on that, Stephen, is just like definitely with the, with particularly the, the Greyjoy rebellion, that is like ultimately selfless and uh, like, I, I don't know I about should, that because, you know... I should not forgive you, Balon. I should absolutely execute No, he, do, he does that. But I, I'm just sort of saying, in terms of, like, you know, because we have, like, Ned's whole kind of, like, you know, hypothesizing about, you know, what would Rob Robert do if he knew? But, like, on a certain level, you know, he does view, like, you know, for one thing, a rebellion is a great opportunity to get out of the house and have some fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, um, yeah. Totally. But also, he, he like he does view rebellions as like you know, hey, you you calling me a winkling? Yeah, oh, I'm yeah. gonna show you. Yeah. Uh, so you know that that's why I'm sort of saying like not exactly, uh, you know, selfless. Oh yeah, because like, no. his his ego is very directly involved. Absolutely, and yet he's still like basically the best of the of those Bar Baratheon brothers. Maybe. Yeah, well, I know why people love Stannis, but 
Like Stannis is even bigger ego. Yeah, than, but like, you know the the thing that I'd say about Stannis that that I wouldn't about Robert is like Stannis has the capacity for growth, and that's hugely important in a leader, uh, yeah. especially in a monarchy where like you're stuck with that leader until they die. So if they can't adapt over time, you might be screwed. Yeah. Well, who knows? Like, uh, what I say about Robert and, like, what I think, honestly, is, like, he is just totally the embodiment of, like, you will follow this man 100% in wartime, and that's when he's meant to rule and be a leader. It just, he is not at all a peacetime leader. Right. And, like, that's where, he, like, he, he's, like, completely flubs and, like, is, like, I have no idea what to do. Right. Like, I don't know this world. I know, like, fighting and what to do and, like, when to forgive and when not to forgive. But, like, when it's just, like, okay, which house do you side with on this little trade dispute? It's like, I don't know. I don't care. Yeah. But, yeah, so what do we think about Egg for, like, all this? Like, So what do you think? Like, do you want to go the full hypothetical worst? or Because even if we go, like, uh, at least I thought, like, even if we assume the hypothetical worst, he did... He did have the really legitimate best intentions. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, maybe split the difference, right? If, you know, one would be, you know, he was completely sane, and ten would be he was completely insane. Maybe a five? You really? Okay, yeah. All right. Well, just, I I feel like that averages out the two possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, well, we don't know as of yet which way it ultimately scaled. But like I said, like... He doesn't seem to me like Mad King insane. Like he wasn't that. If if it really was that at the end, but he definitely was like. Yeah, it, but you know, at the same time, like uh, one of the things that I do think is there is like the incredible temptation of you know dragons for a cut. Like I th- I think we maybe see this a little bit with Daenerys. It's like if you think that you're in the right. You know, yeah. and oh. does it feel great to have, you know, total power on your side? And you can justify a lot of really shitty things by saying like, well, but I'm doing it for the right reason. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, if if you're a little bit more self-doubting, maybe you're also a little bit more self-controlled. Which uh, I know season eight gets all the flack it does, but that final speech or the second to final speech that Tyrion gives to the speech he gives to Jon Snow uh, I, I, I can't, I, I can't forgive that one because the whole, like, you know, first they came for the communist thing. It's okay, like, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's a, that's a bridge too far for me. Uh, okay. I, I've heard that argument. I, I can completely understand that argument. I did like how they kind of set it out of like, and I think when you look at it from kind of like that perspective of the show, like Daenerys Arc is definitely there of just like. Yeah, it's just that... You uh, know, like, when the, you crucified the slavers, that's, like, the first time where it's like, mm, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Well, I don't know. You know... Yeah. I, I think you... You know, the the, the problem, and, and this, you know, this is my historian brain talking, is there is a certain... Um, how shall I put it? Anti-revolutionary tendency in a lot of genre fiction. Oh, yeah. Yes. You know, we, we understand yeah. the status quo. We like the status quo. What is harder to see is the sort of the violence embedded in the status quo. Yeah. Uh, and this is where, like, you know, I think to myself, like, well, okay, but there was the guy who was, you know, 
crucified in the Plaza of Pain in Astapor. Yeah. And, you know, I there were definitely people like him in Marine 2. So, you know, what does it say about us that we have sympathy for the, you know, the visible slaver who is crucified and not the invisible slave who is crucified? Yeah, absolutely. Well, th no, that's part of the point, and then Martin is conscious yeah. of that. And so, and this is why I think it, this will play out much better if it goes that way in 1,600 pages of books. Right. Is, um, we'll see how that ultimately plays out. Um, yeah, I think like definitely, at least where the show people, and I think where Martin might go, definitely the execution of, of, um, of Dickon and Randall is like definitely more on the like, ooh, I don't know. Um, like, it's like a 50-50 decision. Yeah, you know, that, that one's tricky because, you know, um, it, it's certainly framed that way. But as, you know, someone points out, like, John is framed very differently for doing the same thing. Uh, with um, the... When he executes Ollie and Alistair Thorne and all those guys. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I think that is a different-ish situation because they already did... They did kill him, so... Yeah, but, you know, they had been fighting, you know, on behalf of House Lannister and had betrayed their o direct overlords, the Tyrells. So, yeah. you know, I don't know. Like, it, that, one's, yeah. that one's a little bit, uh, I feel, more, more ambivalent than it uh, sometimes gets given credit for. Yeah, well, no, it's supposed to be an ambivalent moment, though. Because, I, I, like, I, I'm with you. Like, I can go either way on that decision of, like, well, they're unarmed and like they've, like they're already defeated, but right. it's like, so it's like, mm, like you need to make a point. You can't be like a pushover. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could talk forever about the show and like their yeah. decisions. Yeah. Um, getting into uh, just the fun like a uh, lighter category. I'm sending you over like the image from Westeros.org of Egg, of okay. the category of the portrait. So out of five, what do you think? Uh, um, it's not a great picture. It's a little bit, you know what it, it reminds me of is like someone who has a really sudden growth spurt oh. and doesn't like, you know, their, their body hasn't quite adapted it full, itself fully yet. I'll send you the other one. Like, um, th this one's from, uh, from the world of ice and fire if yeah that one's a bit better yeah he's he's aged into his looks a little bit better there okay out of five what do you think uh i would go with like maybe two and a half for the first one and maybe like three and a half or four for the second i'll go with a nicer one so four and a half yeah fair enough like i've just the first image, I like. I'm fairly sure I've taught this kid in one of my classes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, maybe not the the cloak and the purple and yellow, but yeah. So let me get my calculator out and let's tally up what your score is. And I doubled it so we could compare it to what you, what um, Evan and I scored. So, twenty six for category of the king. You gave him sixteen for the category of the king. Mm -hmm. uh, 17 for the category of the warrior uh, 10 for for just 
madness and misrule because again we don't know how much it really ultimately went yeah um nine for the category of of portrait and so that gives him a score of 78 that's okay pretty darn good and uh where did we land on egg on the fifth we gave him uh huh that's surprising. Uh, oh, oh, okay. No, never mind. Uh, we gave him a little bit higher. We gave him eighty-four point five. Yeah, but that's that's pretty close. Yeah, that's pretty close. So seventy-eight. Yeah, it's pretty close. And uh, your score is uh, still like he still scores pretty damn high on the list. Um, for our scores, he's only he's uh, third. He's only behind Jaharis and Aegon the Conqueror. Yeah, that sounds about right. And yeah. Um, fun category we discussed beforehand, like, and this is especially for Evan, but like, we got all those potential spinoffs coming out. Like, uh, do you think Egg on the Fifth is cinematic? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I unfortunately don't think he's going to be one of those because, uh, they, I don't think they want to do an unfinished, uh, uh, George R. R. Martin series again. I, I think probably not. Also, I think a little bit, um, getting into it i i have heard like there's like a little bit of like a rights thing where he sold the rights to westeros and he sold the rights to like a, a song of ice and fire but he didn't sold the sell the rights to duncan egg aha uh-huh. so like that's why like there's references to like sir duncan and egg but i think that's why they haven't done like history and lores about duncan egg in uh, the special features i see and so, like, I think that's something that, like, that Martin, like, Martin has flat said, like, well, like, theoretically, anyone else can buy the rights to Duncan Egg, but he obviously wants it to be HBO. Right. And, like, personally, like, the the three novellas we have can make just really good, like, HBO movies. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, is that they're, they're very, uh, I, I don't think that they would make like a good 10 episode season because they're shorter no. stories. Yeah. Uh, but I think they're, you know, very nicely paced for like a good, you know, nice, you know, yeah, nice movie. I, I wonder how they would cast like the harder role to cast, obviously, is is Dunk just because like his height is a big component. Yeah. You need someone uh, big and beefy and also good at like. Because here's the thing. I think it would be very easy to play Dunk as stupid. Yeah. I think he's he's closer to someone who is... He, he knows he's not very well educated. Um, but, like, he when he thinks deeply about something, he is actually capable of quite a lot of profundity. So I, I would imagine you'd need to think very long and slow about, you know... Yeah. What uh, what kind of person you want? Uh, also, you know the egg thing. I mean, as we saw with the the main cast from uh, Song of Ice and Fire, uh, excuse me, from Game of Thrones. Like, you know, you need to be very careful about the kids that you that yeah. you pick because you don't know what's going to happen when puberty gets a hold of them. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, Harry Potter, all these series when when it happens. Yeah. And uh, well, that is like theoretically though, the movie format is a bit easier for like okay, now we got. Like, and th- presumably they have more books to go off of, but it's like, okay, now we got, we're going to go 15 year old, um, 
yeah, that's a good we point. got a new egg. Cast a little easier there. Yeah, it might be. We'll see. Like I'm rooting for for a Dunkin' Egg series. Personally, I mean, Stephen, I I'd love to hear your thoughts right now. Just like this has been a fun, just like kind of freeform podcast. Sure. But like uh, the long night, I thought that like of all the one time periods they chose to like make a spinoff from, like the long night was like really okay. I'm not sure why they chose the long night. What do you think about? Yeah, that? that's that's one of the weirder ones because like especially within the sort of show canon, I feel like that's the one that they've answered most of the questions about. Um, you know, the, the other spinoff, the Doom of Valyria spinoff, like, I feel like there's a little bit more kind of like room to run. That's way too expensive though. Like that's like super expensive. Like, like just like the long night, my, my thing about the long night is like the long night and like Doom of Valyria, that kind of stuff. That's like so much more like pure fantasy. And that's kind of not what is the appeal of. A Song of Ice and Fire and Westeros, honestly, is like all those are like mythical times when when there's just magic all around, and it's honestly more of a Tolkien kind of fantasy world at that point. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly hope like the one thing that I, I I'm really kind of hopeful for is like on the Long Night, like please don't have it be like the same technology level. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that'd be really because, yeah. It's supposed to be thousands of years older. Like, yeah. this should be Stone Age. This should be Bronze Age. This should not be kings and knights and, you know, the round table. It's It should be like, well, they called them kings, but they weren't like, what? Yeah, I mean, more, but I'm thinking more like, you know, King Agamemnon as opposed yeah. to Henry V. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, personally, I still maintain that the series and I think maybe they never will say what what Brian Cogman pitched, but I think that the Dance of the Dragons is definitely the way they should go for of the spinoffs that make the most sense to me. I don't like that's kind of in the realm of like budgetary feasible to do live action, mm. and like it's like familiar but at the same time different, like. Right. That's what I'm rooting for. Plus, that just like that's my favorite kind of like dark historical period. That would be great to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, hell, I'd love to see a Blackfire Rebellions, but you know, no one's going to do that. So. Yeah. Well, Blackfire Rebellions that would be interesting because they're like at that point, like, and I don't know what would you do, Stephen? Like, except for Blood Raven, there's basically no magic at all. It's just pure medieval at that um, point. Um. Yeah. I mean, you've got. Blood Raven, you've got Shiro Sea Star. Um, yeah. You know, you've got like weird shenanigans happening with eggs and, you know, prophetic dreams and stuff like that. So it's it's like it's certainly less magical than the than the main series, but you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, like what I love about Blackfire Rebellion series would be just like that that like Damon is not like evil. Like he's kind of just just like you said the war of the human heart just like right. just like darren of like, like you can see both of them as being like these tyrants and awful people or you can see them as like utter heroes right and so like that that's like a great way to go and like bittersteel and blood raven are just phenomenal characters to be the the more kind of varus and little finger of those eras yeah i mean okay. 
Okay. Where will they go? HBO has got lots of things to go off of. Yeah. So, I think we already kind of have have, have hinted at it, but what do you think, Stephen, of the the final category of Dragon or Dud? Is Aegon the Fifth like a someone really special worth remembering, or is he kind of a footnote? Um. Okay. So I can see arguments for either way. Um, I would say he's a dragon because, like, at the end of the day, I think he's one of the few drag like Targaryen monarchs who actually cared about his people uh, and tried to do something about it and change the world. Uh, on the other hand, like, everything that he did was undone by Jaehaerys. So, you know, it's, it's you know, uh, it's a little bit like Hamilton, right? Who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're we are all at the mercy of legacy. Absolutely, very true, very true. Um, we voted dragon, and like, uh, well, definitely what we, and like Evan could see it in the walls. Like, he's definitely the last great, like, genuinely good Targaryen king. Mm -hmm. And he he also like to me at least of Egg is that one obviously he cares about the people and he's trying to at the same time though save the save the system of government from like the cracks are showing yeah the cracks are showing honestly i'll say this also like if if aegon the third and viserys the second were not as competent as they were it would have been utterly astonishing had like any form of targaryen ruler survived yeah because like i could completely see them that dynasty collapsing the minute they don't have dragons yeah, no, that was a, I, I would argue, a very real possibility. It's like, it's just like, and so Aegon's the fifth is like, is right there with Darren the second of just like the last time, like, okay, this is our good guy, but like, let, like, maybe we got a shot, maybe we got a shot of this. And then like, Jaehaerys obviously just sabotages every ounce of progress. And then of course, Tywin further sabotages the progress by then undoing all of anything Aegon left, Fifth's yeah, re reforms. So, yeah. So, okay. yeah, but I mean, also going into like the future of that, theoretically, Viserys is, uh, Varys is modeling all of Aegon the, Aegon the Fifth's life, to be, young Grifts as you call him's, rule, and like educations, like mm -hmm. I'm gonna make sure you're gonna be the next Aegon the Fifth, right? Of you got a hedge knight, and you're gonna not really know like luxury lifestyle. Hopefully you're going to be Aegon the Fifth, right? Right. right? <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun, Stephen. Thank okay. you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Um, do you want to plug anything before you go? Uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, so I just recently launched a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Steve Natwell. So uh, if you ha you know enjoy my work at Race for the Iron Throne, uh, dot wordpress.com or dot tumblr.com and you'd like to help me make it more of a full-time gig uh please you know whatever you can uh afford uh is greatly appreciated awesome well um i i don't normally plug myself but i'll, I'll do it for this one occasion um i got um i also am a comic book writer in my fun free time oh, uh and you can thanks and uh you can check out my uh, comic grim and gritty on comicsology.com and uh, on Amazon.com, you can see the first volume of my series Caligula Imperatore in Sanum. Uh, that's a lot of fun. Uh, 
all my comics are not for kitties, um, just like this podcast. So. Yeah, I would imagine that a comic about Caligula would be a little bit hard to keep to a PG-13. No, yeah, no, it, it can't be done. Uh, so thank you so much, for, Stephen, for coming to join us. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, see you guys next week. We'll be continuing to rank the kings who sat on the Iron Throne. Um, and uh, pretty soon, Evan and I are going to to have our own Dance of the Dragons. We're going to compete and square off all the, the dragon kings and determine which one was the particularly special one, which one was the real, truly greatest of the kings. So stick around, and we'll see you then. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.